sports documentaries, as a form, as a genre, are they really what we think they are? And why does it seem like there's so many more being made over these past few years? All this and a lot more today on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome, I'm Jonathan Bollinger. Today, I'm in discussion with Dr. Brendan Bueller. He's out of Seton Hall. And his scholarship covers sports television and sports media. You can find his work in things like Journal of Sports Media or the International Journal of Sport Communication. But today, our conversation focuses around his work in sports documentaries. And you can find that work uh, in a new volume that is edited by a past guest, uh, Travis Vogan, uh, called Sporting Realities, Critical Readings of the Sports Documentary. And this conversation... We talk about things like 30 for 30 film series. We talk about sort of the larger context of the rise of documentaries uh, on streaming television. And we also really get into the idea of documentary as a form, uh, the aesthetics of it, and really why Dr. Bueller finds this such an interesting topic. And so what I would just want to remind you guys about before we get into that conversation is every two weeks you'll find a new episode for free here on this feed. There you found this particular episode. And our archive of episodes from previous seasons, along with new bonus episodes, are only available on Patreon. If you do want to see the episode descriptions with some supplemental information like photos and videos and links to some of these uh, interview guest work, well, you can still go to www tvhistorypod.com to find all that supplementary work. Okay? So, without further ado, let's get right into our conversation with Dr. Bueller. So, uh, thank you, Brandon, for sitting down with us uh, today for Inside the Box. And what I think is really most interesting with your area of research is what I think a lot of folks are noticing, maybe not consciously, but what they're noticing is there seems to be this spike in the amount of sports documentary that are available across multiple platforms these days. And the other area that I think is interesting, along with the spike in numbers, is sort of how particularly younger generations perceive what documentary is or what documentary is supposed to be. So I think that'll be the jumping off point for us, in, I hope, in this conversation. But before we get there, what really drew you to wanting to focus on sort of sports documentary as a, as a form in, in your work? Well, like you just mentioned, I, I was really noticing also this, this explosion in sports documentaries. And I had long really enjoyed sports documentaries when 
uh, I was getting my uh, degree in film, for instance, um, like a film like Murderball was one of my favorites and was really had me even thinking I wanted to make sports documentaries. And so all of a sudden, when it, it felt like there started to be, particularly with the 30 for 30 series and then a lot of other sort of imitators around that, that there's this real explosion in, in, in documentaries, you know, I started being really first I was just, you know, really curious about where where that was coming from, what was causing that. But then I also started to to really notice the way these documentaries were being written about in, in sort of the way that they were they were being really revered, uh, sort of in a, a way that I found really curious. They were being talked about like they weren't part of sports television, like they were this whole uh, kind of separate area, like they they weren't you know, part of ESPN. They weren't part of, you know, whatever they were airing on. Like they weren't part of television. Like they were in this own sort of box by themselves. And so, uh, you know, my initial area of, of interest was just where, where all these documentaries come from, what's causing this kind of explosion. And, and so uh, looking at reasons for that, like just basically them, them being cheap content. But then I, I, you know, I started being really interested. Then again, in this, this sort of uh, the the way that they were being discussed in, in what felt like a, a different um, discursive kind of uh, uh, palette than the rest of sports television, and so that that became a jumping off point for sort of some other inquiries I had into to the subject, trying to figure out why they were being discussed as this kind of. Uh, elevated right. higher form of sports television than uh for example if you you know tune on to the rest of you know ESPN schedule why is no one saying this about you know any of their daily talk programs why is no <laughs> one you know putting up the jump right. for you know a peabody why why are why are all these other parts of sports television seen as so pedestrian and why are the sports documentaries why were they getting all this fanfare why why were they on these top 10 lists for like the best television programs of the year and why you know, why is that sports center? Right. You know, why, you know what, what was causing that? So that became then what I became more fascinated by was just kind of the the discourse around the documentaries. And and I, I want to kind of take a half step back here because I think you've, you brought up some really good points in your initial interest, which is what always gets me is that people never sort of disentangle the idea of sports as a entertainment business and the media companies whose job or, or occupation is to report on them. And they, they don't realize that it all over the years has sort of become sort of entangled. So one thing that I always joke with my students about is, you know, I'll say, uh, you like to watch SportsCenter, right? Or you like to watch ESPN or whatever they're watching these days. Uh, yes, I do. And uh, I say, well, you realize that that's not actually a show. That's just an advertisement because they also bought the rights to show games. You know, those those are those are both sort of entangled there. And the reason I mention this is because I think it's that same sort of confusion, that same sort of maybe lack of thought. You know, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be like the elitist, like, oh, you're not thinking about sports correctly. But the idea here is that documentary within within at least U.S. culture has had this connection with sort of news gathering, a sort of objectivity. But I'm guessing, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing that folks who've studied film understand documentary in a different way, understand that it can be more than just sort of this objective thing or objective form. And so 
when we look at how certain techniques of documentary have been appropriated in other mass culture uh, formations over the years, we start to see that, uh, A, it makes it more familiar to us, but B, it should also make us, or it should remind us that, hey, not all documentaries are, you know, Walter Cronkite and, uh, you know, Edward R. Murrow. You know, it's not a news gathering function. It's used for these other purposes. What do you think about that idea of, of in your in your reading of this sort of discourse around it, does, did it seem like most people were taking documentary as just strictly that narrow definition of just news gathering or objective reporting? Well, what I thought was interesting in going back in, in you know, around 30 for 30's release when a, a lot of, you know, popular critics were writing about it and it was it was showing up. Uh, and like I mentioned, a lot of like year end top 10 lists is that they were seen as as films to be something more artistic, really, than than uh, than what typically you get out of sports television. They were seen to be this more refined form. And it's really here the 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 connection was being less to to sort of pieces of news, but really pieces of filmic art. Mm, and so what. It, it felt like is is you know if it, what I was noticing is if you look back in these you know top ten lists you know you could see a thirty for thirty next to for example you know I, I'm trying to remember what was sort of uh, on these lists at the time but something like you know like Mad Men would be kind of a a, a comparison point yeah and so the fact that these were being treated as you know kind of in in uh, this has been something that's been analyzed by by scholars like Travis Bogan, that they were being positioned and received as kind of auteurist artworks right. rather than how typically sports television is more discussed and received, which is really not much at all in, in, critically. You know, it's really hard to talk about sports television generically, to talk about it at any sort of, uh, you know, doing any sort of formal textual analysis. There's not a lot of you know, precedence there in, in terms of a lot of the, uh, the you know, critical discourse. Sure. And documentaries, there are ways of doing that. You could, you could talk about, you know, the masterful editing. You could talk about, you know, the, you know, the amazing even cinematography in terms of how these were being put together. And so it really felt like critics were latching on to, in particular, the, the way there are links here to auteur cinema mm. and, and using them then as examples that could be in the same way much of television was being talked about at the time. And it's still being talked about in many ways that you could, you know, talk about, you know, The Wire as, you know, this this great piece from David Simon or Mad Men as this great piece from Matthew Weiner. The same way that you could talk about these uh, sports documentaries is also being auteurist uh, pieces of cinema and thus allowed them to to slide into that discourse yeah. uh, that was happening across the rest of television. And as, as you know, like I was mentioning, Travis Bogan has, you know, pointed out, this was very intentional on, on, you know, on ESPN's part, the way that they very much sold the 30 for 30 documentaries as auteurist pieces of art in that, you know, this is very intentional the way to, to, to brand them this way. And you've seen, you know, other, other documentary distributors do 
kind of similar moves like an HBO, for example. But but it was really that that felt like so much of the comparison point as documentaries are exploding is to to fit them alongside more um, auteurist pieces of, of cinema and television and to, to kind of position them discursively in, in that way, which, you know, is very much what you know, the, the companies were hoping when they were, when they were released. Yeah. And, and, and you kind of got me thinking about two ideas here and these are more sort of off the cuff comments, uh, listeners, this doesn't mean it's right. I'm just sort of spitballing here off of our guests ideas. But the, the first is that I wonder if you were to go back through, um, in your sample, all the particular sports writers, uh, or and I'm, I'll be completely forthcoming here. You know, I did not study you know every piece of material that you used in your article and all that stuff, or your chapter. But you know, you wonder if you took a, an average of the age of the sports writer, whether they in any way, shape, or form would have been influenced by um, the perspective of a Steve Sable of NFL films, who was sort of a famous boomer who uh, fancied himself a creative although he was also quite quite you know jockish in some ways and and deliberately tried to make NFL uh, films his father's company uh, adhere to sort of the, the the film school stuff that he himself went through as a you know as a college student so that's that's the one idea and, and again neither here it may not be neither here nor there but that's what I was thinking and then the second point is this idea of uh, auteur filmmaking, in I, that I wonder if there's a desire to sort of make at that time to make sports a little more prestigious, a little more respectable. And here's where I completely lose my credibility by going way too out on a far on a limb here and connect it to sort of what Disney has been trying to do with some of their sort of star Wars franchises and these sorts of things where we're now going to make a more sort of adult you know, grittier version of the Star Wars franchise so that adults can sort of enjoy this. Um, but I think whether those two points are, are there or not, I think the foundation is that the mass audience seems to have an awareness that a named director with a named style who engages in the, his or her subject matter, if you can say that that's the person doing the project, it immediately sort of ups the status, the ups, the potential for prestige uh, within this. And then I still think there's maybe a bit of a news element there. I think some, some, I'm guessing some television sports executives, it's a guess on my part here, still sort of fancy themselves sports writers or news people in one way or another, even though they're, you know, just selling, you know, whoever on whatever. So um, yeah, I think, I think that is, I think that's interesting as far as um, the auteur, uh, you know, selling the auteur essentially, which should have been your alternative title. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, the other thing that was interesting as far as I like also that you brought up the context of sort of what's happening at that time, because uh, it's so important for whenever we, whatever it is we're studying. So what's also interesting these days is it's not just sports documentaries, but, and I'm, and I have a little cheat sheet over here that I just want to make sure I remember the names here, but, uh, we had things like the '90s as a documentary series, the toys that made us, Apollo 11, the movies that made us, High Score on video games, Class Action Park, and even biography. I want my MTV. So it seems like, and I, I guess for myself, 
what I saw with this idea, why I wanted you to come on today, is my initial knee-jerk, honest reaction was, well, no wonder you're going to do these series. You, you're the Viacoms and and other companies of the world. You're sitting on all this footage that I assume is on tapes in some vault somewhere, or maybe it's been digitized by now. Why wouldn't you piece together a bunch of things and and have easy peasy? And and this was actually my thought with Thirty for Thirty, although, and I'll mention this later, but it's actually not as re, much repurposed ESPN footage as I thought it was going to be, uh, partly because of the auteur theory. So, um. Any any sense and 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 I'm I'm listeners I'm very subtly uh, guiding our guests toward a next point here so we'll see if we get there but um, any thoughts here about the idea of the role that nostalgia either naturally or unnaturally plays within sort of a sports fandom any any ideas there yeah well uh, you you made the point about archival footage and that and that's really key into to why we've seen you know, so many of these sports documentaries of, of late. And, and uh, really here, there's a really important industrial context, which is over the course of the, the 90s and 2000s, you saw so many sports media outlets coming into existence. And when they're coming to existence, whether you're talking about, you know, ESPN's various spinoffs, including ESPN Classic, which oh, yeah. was really centered oh. around the archive. Yeah, yeah. Or whether you're talking about things like uh, the Speed Cable Channel or the Outdoor Life Network or uh, the College Sports Network. There are just so many sports cable channels launching and there continue to be sports outlets forming now um, online. Documentaries make for you know really great cheap content and they particularly are appealing if you're, uh, if you're a cable channel that's centered around a specific league. Um, or a specific conference, if you're the ACC network, or you're the SEC network, or if you're, uh, you know, the NFL network, or you're the MLB network, you know, there's so many examples of this, you know, could just keep going down sure. the line, listing every conference, every league. Um, and, and they often have, you know, these, these archives of footage, of footage that they have rights to. And so putting it together into a documentary is, you know, it makes a lot of sense financially, because you get their Basically, you're repurposing your archival footage, and uh, what can be really helpful on top of that is, you know, as as uh, Bogan points out, is that then this is evergreen content that your network can show forever. So if the SEC network makes a documentary using, you know, the uh, the resources that it already has, it can then show that, splice and dice it into its schedule, you know, an infinite number of ways that you know documentaries don't don't get old, <laughs> you know, basically, you know, they have, they, they have this ability to stand up over time and to be, uh, to be aired again and again in the way that other sports television content is very much in the here now. Uh, so if you have all of this, you know, basic, you know, financial incentive to make cheap programming, uh, it, it makes sense. You would, you would veer toward documentaries, but on top of that, yeah, then, you know, the reason why one of the ma- main reasons why that makes sense as financial financially uh, uh, workable content is because of that nostalgia of having you know people are are we willing to revisit this archival footage in this format uh, because they have an attachment to whatever the time period might be they have an attachment to whatever whatever the subject matter might be and so you know being able to capitalize on the nostalgia with really cheaply produced content. It, it, I mean, there's a lot of 
lot of logic to it. Yeah, it, 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 this is something that I've, and I actually, I should say one thing real quick, uh, listeners. You'll notice that our guest and myself have mentioned the name Vogan about oh, about 13 million times between the two of us. And the reason is we are just unabashed fans. He's a fellow scholar, a little ahead of the game than, than either of us, to be honest. And he's just a really good writer uh, of some fantastic books. Uh, so uh, we'll, in the, in the show information, we'll link to uh, some of his work. But the nostalgia element for me is, it reminds me of a, of a quote from, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, uh, creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000, Joel Hodgson. Um, but he basically, uh, he showed up in one of Jerry Seinfeld's, uh, you know, rich people getting coffee with each other, you know, show. And, uh, Joel, you know, Joel is just always has a really good sort of smart thing to say. And, and Jerry was asking something about either the past or history or nostalgia or whatever. And Joel, just as, as easy peasy as, as one could be is, as he kind of takes a sip of his coffee, he says, well, the reason they do that is because it's comfortable. They already know how it ends. You know, it's safe. And I think a lot of that is what has driven my own interest, although you've done much more work in this area uh, than I have, with the idea of sports documentary. Because when I see these advertisements for the documentary, my brain does not, my brain does not uh, sort of blink documentary, documentary, documentary. It blinks, I know how that ends. It's a story I've read before. There's nothing new here. Uh, it, it, it's it's to me, and I'm being a little extra harsh here, so I'm not saying I necessarily believe this, but just to be a little sort of poke the bear a bit, you know, to me, it's like the equivalent of like, you know, going and getting a Big Mac or, or getting a Wendy's chicken sandwich or something, right? You know exactly what it's going to be. It's delicious. It's from your childhood and it's very satisfying in that way, but you're not really going to learn a whole, a whole, whole lot. You, you, it's more about, almost being able to sort of nudge the person next to you who's maybe less familiar and say, wait till you get to, wait till they talk about, wait till you see, because you already, you know, you already, you already know that stuff. Um, one thing that I want to bring up here, and we may end up cutting this out, but, and please understand, this is a, a totally back of the envelope, very crude calculation, no intercoder reliability, just one basic pass. But I was looking at the 30 for 30 series, and it's and my understanding of it was let me see if I have my number here. I think there are 182 films branded in some way, shape, or form that right. And so the the series were 30 for 30. This first series, ESPN Films presents the second series, the third series, OJ Made in America, the fourth series, and then 30 for 30 shorts. And I actually very unscientifically. I actually only counted about 71 of those 182 or roughly about 39% that I would actually label as leaning toward nostalgia. Now, doesn't mean other segments and other films didn't have that lean. It may have, again, I just did this very easily, very quickly, but I was a little surprised by that, that, that there wasn't more. I, you know, if you, you and I had had a, had a betting contest, I would have said 57%, you know, or 60% or something. So um, in one way, I think the idea of auteur, while certainly a sales gimmick, I think when you got good enough filmmakers who did a, a, a good enough piece that didn't fall into what they wanted, but were nonetheless had to accept it, 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 how good it was, how, how high quality it was, that they may have gotten an actual real film out of it, whether they wanted 
wanted one or not. I don't know. That's just my thought. Um, yeah, well, it'd certainly be be interesting to do some some comparisons where you know, again, documentaries often being used to 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 cheaply fill programming space across all of these various cable outlets to to do some comparison. How many of those, if you're just talking about something that was produced really quickly and, and really cheaply for, you know, something like, you know, one of these uh, college conference networks yeah. that's just going back <laughs> and revisiting, you know, a big title game, et cetera. Um, how much, how much, you know, those are, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of trafficking in the familiar versus um, something where maybe, ideally a 30 for 30 film feels comfortable to explore a topic that's a little less directly related to the programming schedule yeah. than yeah, I th- in something I think else. you bring up, sorry, I just, you bring up a great point there, which is, it's almost like, how do I want to say this? And this, I'll get myself in trouble with our institutions here, but you know, what is an alumnus other than, you know, a person who wants to perpetually live in the glory days so why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't a a network devoted to the university sports program sort of lean to that, you know, lean into that uh, for sure. Um, so, oh, I, one other thing I want to mention real quick with the 30 for 30 thing, because before I made it seem like, well, maybe they aren't so nostalgic. But then, uh, I don't know if you caught this, but in 2018, they did a tie-in with the, I guess it was... No, it was then YouTube, and now it's Netflix, the Cobra Kai Karate Kid retro show. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. Um, okay, so you're, you're, this, listeners, we now know Brandon's way too young. Uh, so long story short, the 1984 Karate Kid film, right? It became sort of a cult classic for that generation. The actors all came back in, I want to say, 2017 or 2018 and did a retro um a retro reunion-ish kind of series that catches up on the characters now in middle age. Um, I think the guy who did How I Met Your Mother produced it or, or wrote it or whatever. Anyway, all about retro, all about nostalgia. And what they did to promote it and also promote the 30 for 30 series is they did a fake trailer, or sorry, they did a trailer for the Cobra Kai show, but done in the style as if it was an authentic 30 for 30 uh, athletic documentary about these this karate championship back in 1984. So um, for every great film that's truly a piece of classic cinema in the sports genre, when you make something an ad like that, it kind of kind of torpedoes those intentions a little bit. <laughs> but um, uh, what I want to leave us on before we get you to you know plug whatever you you want to do, uh, want to talk to us about is there's this de- there's this definition I'm looking at it because I want to make sure I get it correct but this definition of document uh, documentary from a, a, a guy named John Grierson and I want to kind of throw it at you and sort of get your perspective on it it's definitely within the idea of sports documentaries that you've you've studied but his definition of documentary was quote the creative treatment of actuality and then, I added my own. I don't know if this is really useful, but I said that's guided by ethical concerns to better inform an audience about a topic. So this idea of creative treatment of of actuality is based on your own training, your own education, your own work. Is that sort of match with your understanding of what documentary is or is it something different? 
Yeah, certainly. I I remember that definition from my uh, undergraduate documentary class, um, revisiting that. But my main problem is, so I mentioned earlier that when 30 for 30 came out, I was very excited. Um, I'd always loved uh, sports documentaries, uh, you know, and it felt like they were relatively rare in, in, I guess, compared to now. I mean, certainly there are, you know, a number being produced, but I was very excited um, when that series launched, they even went to like a festival screening of the two Escobars. I mean, I, I was, I was yeah. all in, I mean, I was, I was very excited by it. And as it started going past the 30, it was initially supposed to be 30 films and started going past it. It, as I was watching more and more films that were being produced across other distributors, I started to become a bit disillusioned with the genre, I would say. And that's because if I if I if I ideally want a documentary to be the creative treatment of actuality, it started to feel inc- over and over again like I was seeing within particularly this this genre a lack of creativity. That in particular it seemed to really lend itself to certain formulas and templates okay. and really you saw the the residue of the uh the sports film genre um and so it just felt like no matter what subject was was being kind of dealt with you you saw the traces of the underdog you saw the traces of the big game you saw the traces of you know either the the victory plot formula or the loss plot formula either one kind of being in a similar ballpark around that that big game as the climax and and it just all started to feel so familiar and so it felt like increasingly not a creative treatment of actuality <laughs> if we want to use creative as uh, kind of liberally sure. there, but it, it felt like there is just so much of a template across this 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 genre to me that I I started to really just tune out of the entire entire thing, and that is part of why I started going into my writing on sports documentary a little a little bit critically, is because it, it started to not make sense to me why these these documentaries are being so critically revered and hailed as you know kind of the 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 one true you know piece of artwork within sports television when to me there is nothing to to separate out so many of these from what else fills the rest of a sports television programming schedule like how are these any more you know socially culturally relevant than you know a a, a 10 minute conversation that might fill in one of the, you know, ubiquitous sports talk programs that fills all these schedules and that, you know, they're, they were so formulaic and so, so, you know, bound by those tropes of the sports film genre that, you know, there just wasn't a lot about it that was, that was interesting to me, particularly when I find personally what, what draws me to, to watching sports generally is the unknown that anything could happen Mm -hmm in any moment. And that's why I, you know, I'm always trying to pull up some sort of live sport. It's just because it really feels like anything could unfold. Yeah, there are the rules of the game, but anything in that moment could happen. There are just, you know, an infinite number of variables coming into play in that context. And it just felt like increasingly sports documentaries were so inert. Right. They, they lacked any of that vibrancy that I wanted out of the, the, the unpredictability and the chaos of sports. And so, I was like, well, give, you know, I'd rather give the, you know, a Peabody to, you know, 
game five of the NBA playoffs <laughs> yeah. than I would to, yeah. you know, as a media event in the way that it's orchestrated, in the way that it, you know, unfolds on screen, in the way that it's all put together. That to me is, you know, a more impressive accomplishment than, you know, so many of these kind of, you know, just formulaic, you know, pieces of uh, documentary that I was, you know, watching across all the all the screens. And then I started to, you know, get very, very disillusioned and critical. And so that's that then led me into, you know, why are these on top 10 lists? Yeah. Why, why is, you know, why is not just like a regular season baseball game on the top 10 list? I, well, I, you know, don't worry about uh, being a critical media studies scholar or leaning that way because uh, we certainly support that. So you, you're welcome here. Um, but yeah, I would I would say I have the same reaction. I had the same reaction with some of those 30 for 30 films which for every, like, you know, for one that I found particularly fascinating, which although I knew the story for the most part, uh, the Todd Marinovich uh, uh, project, the famous drug-addled, you know, USC quarterback, um, you know, for every one of those, and especially I think you could see it with the, uh, the shorts, is they knew it wasn't enough of a story for the full documentary. And so they kind of got in, they got out, they had their basic arc and, you know, easy peasy. And I'll, I'll just add one, one other thing here and say that, uh, while I, I, I think you and I would differ with the idea of the unknowing unknownness of live sports. I'm not arguing that, you know, new things happen. Yes, of course, some new things happen, but, but one, but I always sort of joke with my, again, my particularly sports obsessed undergraduates, the ones who haven't quite thought through it enough you know, they'll. I remember whatever Super Bowl that was, where uh, like Joe Namath screwed up the coin toss, and the first uh, the first uh, uh, hike of the ball went over Peyton Manning's head. And I'm afraid if it was that Super Bowl or the other one, but the the generators, uh, you know, uh, conked out and the whole thing went into darkness. I remember joking with my students and said those were actually the best Super Bowls in years because j- truly new things happen that that normally don't. And so I, I would sort of slightly argue with you in the sense of uh, my other sort of joke is it's like, you know, is Lucille Ball's sitcom hilarious? Yes. Is when she tries to, you know, catch all the candy off the conveyor belt. Is that still funny? Yes. But have I seen it a million times? Yes, I have. And with football, which is televised, we've seen it now for six decades or something like I've pretty much seen almost everything that you're going to see, but that's a topic for another time. But I think you can see where I'm kind of going with that. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the the idea of template, and then I think from you mentioned earlier this sort of you know media economic or political economic perspective of it sort of angers you that then a corporation like an ESPN or ESPN Disney you know, sort of hides behind the, the, the awards, the sort of high recognition to just sort of constrain what documentary or good sports documentary could and continue to, should be, uh, because at least that first season of 30 through 30 was beloved and is great. And it, it ultimately sort of narrows, you know, what the, what the form, what the form could be. So I'm looking at the time here and, I think I have wasted a good half hour of your time, so uh, I don't think I want to waste too much more of it. But what I would say is uh, two two questions here that you can kind of take us out on is one, um, if you want to talk about any other ideas in sports that you think are particularly really interesting, 
And then if you want to combine that with anything that you want to promote, you know, is there a, is there an article? Is there a book? Is there a Twitter feed? Is there anything that you do that, you know, you think listeners, once they, they hear this, this episode and they go, Oh, that, that, uh, that Dr. Bueller, he sounds interesting. I want to sort of check out his stuff, you know, where they could go. So I'll remind you any ideas or thoughts about sports that you think would be important for us to maybe throw out there and think about, and then anything to promote. Well, I guess I could just tie those two together. I would uh, definitely recommend, you know, we, we were talking about the the chapter I wrote on documentaries, sports documentaries, and we were talking about the work of Travis Fogan. So I guess the, the one thing I would leave things on and, and plug is the uh, collection that he edited that that was part of, uh, which is a collection on the sports uh, documentary. And so that uh, was out in the end of 2020 on the University of Nebraska Press. And I believe it's what, and, uh, Sporting it, Realities? I believe that's what Yes, Critical Readings of uh, Sports Documentary. And so there's uh, a number of um, great, great chapters in there. Uh, you know, mine was industrially focused, but there are others that were more um, textual analyses of uh, various documentaries. So if anyone's interested... And and learning more about that, uh, it's a great collection edited by uh, both Travis Vogan and Samantha oh, right. Shepard, yeah. and so um, definitely, definitely would uh, would recommend that. So with that, I just want to say thanks again, Brandon, for joining us. We will link to everything with the show notes for the book that uh, Brandon's work has been uh, featured in recently, along with some of his other work, or maybe we'll just link to his faculty page. But again, I do appreciate the conversation. I hope you uh, enjoyed the experience as well. So thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, very cool. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you guys did as well. And actually, while we were recording it, we actually had a little too much content. So what I've done is, there's about, I don't know, 12 or 13 minutes of additional conversation between uh, Dr. Bueller and I, and really what it gets into is a bit of a brainstorming session of how we like to think about media and sports, and a particular idea that he's thinking through right now, and very much its initial stages, and he and I sort of bat that back and forth. I thought it was really interesting, but honestly, I didn't want to kind of get too far into the weeds uh, for folks who are maybe more just casual listeners. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer up that extra, extra uh, couple, few minutes rather, uh, as a bonus episode. So you'll uh, have that available to you if you're a Patreon subscriber. You'll see that drop uh, next week. Just an additional bit of our conversation uh, between myself and Dr. Bueller. So with that, if you stayed with me through, through the end, I do appreciate it. Again, if you want access to that archive, to those bonus episodes, please feel free to give a small donation on Patreon to get access. Otherwise, I will see you all in two weeks for another brand new free episode of Inside the Box. Again, I'm Jonathan Bullinger. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of a...